Welcome to Peed Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. In this episode, we're going to talk about a complaint that can lead you in a lot of different directions. Limping. The list of causes for an abnormal gait is incredibly long and can range from a stubbed toe to a lifelong neurologic disorder and everything in between. It's such a long list that I'm not even going to attempt to address all of it. My goal here is to break things down enough so you can at least get into the right general area, whether it's inflammatory, traumatic, infectious, or something else, and touch on a few specific diagnoses along the way. If you want to do some reading on your own, two of the major sources I used for this are a 2015 Peds and Review article by Martin Herman and Melissa Martinek, and an article on a systematic approach to limping published by Samir Naranji, Derek Kelly, and Jeffrey Sawyer, an American family physician, also from 2015. We'll frame our discussion with a case to give us a little bit more of an anchor. We're seeing a two-year-old boy in clinic who's been limping for the last three or four days. He's always been a healthy kid, and like most two-year-old boys, he's active and all over the place. Or at least he was before he started limping around, although even that's only slowed him down a little bit. The terms limp, gait disturbance, and abnormal gait are used more or less interchangeably in the literature, and we're going to do the same here because they're all defined as a deviation from the normal gait pattern. Normal is also an important word here because it's a fluid definition that's determined by both the patient's age and their usual way of walking. Toddlers have a broad-based gait, especially when they're just starting to walk, take asymmetric steps, and their arm and leg movements aren't very coordinated. In the first few years of walking, there's a pretty wide range of things that are considered normal. If you have a one or two year old who walks a little bit funny, but looks comfortable enough, your best bet is to ask someone who knows them well if that's how they always move. If it is, and everything else checks out, you probably don't need to worry too much. As their muscles and coordination develop, they'll move more and more fluidly until around six to eight years old when most kids have a gait pattern similar to adults. Our patient came in because his mom wanted to get his limp evaluated, so we can probably skip asking her that question. As always, getting a good history is important. Knowing how long the limp has been there and if there have been any changes, either as time has gone by or even within a given day, can help you get a better idea of what's going on. If there is one specific event or injury that started the limping, that's obviously going to be a big clue for you. Still, even the best of us can't have an eye on our kids every second of the day. When that happens, you do what you can to figure out when the patient was last walking normally and at least narrow down the time frame to get a general idea of what could have happened. Going a little broader, asking about more systemic symptoms like fevers, rashes, activity level, and changes in weight or appetite are important to rule in or out some of the more serious potential causes. Checking back in with our patient, his mom says he's been limping for about four days. She doesn't remember any particular injury or other event, but he's a two-year-old boy whose typical day involves a fair amount of running, jumping off furniture, and at least one fall. Other than the limp, he's been acting like himself. A little less active, but normal appetite, no fevers, and just generally being a toddler. For the physical exam, step one is watching the patient walk, and a lot of times that can happen before you're even in the exam room. The first big distinction to make is whether the gait is antalgic or non-antalgic. Antalgic is a nice, documentation-friendly way to say that the limp is to avoid pain. Antalgic literally means against pain. When kids are limping because of pain, they try to put as little weight on that leg as possible, which means keeping the affected leg in contact with the ground for a shorter amount of time than the healthy one. 
You should also look for differences in how they put their feet on the ground and move the ankles, knees, and hips. Avoiding pressure on one part of the foot or limited movement of a particular joint can help you identify an area that deserves more attention. A non-antalgic gait is an abnormal gait that doesn't hurt and typically goes along with more developmental or neurologic causes for limping. The nice thing is there are a few recognizable patterns of non-antalgic gait that really help narrow down the list of causes. There are more than we'll cover here, but three of the more notable ones are Stepage, Trendelenburg, and Equinus. In a Stepage gait, the patient has exaggerated hip and knee flexion. They kind of look like a high-stepping marching band, at least on the affected leg. A Stepage gait is compensation for an inability to dorsiflex the foot with that high lift keeping the toes from dragging on the ground as the patient steps forward. In a Trendelenburg gait, the hips tip toward the healthy side with the affected side bowing outward. It points toward a problem with the hip, either developmental dysplasia or weak abductor muscles that keeps the patient from being able to hold the hips in a neutral position. Last on our list is an equinus gait or toe walking. These patients can't get their foot to a neutral position whether it's because of a club foot, cerebral palsy, or a tight Achilles tendon, so they walk with their toe pointed downward. Beyond watching your patient walk, don't forget to look at the whole patient for signs of more systemic trouble, especially rashes that might go along with something like Lyme disease or lupus. After that, you should take a thorough look at both legs, starting with the one that isn't painful. If you start examining a kid by going for the part that hurts the most, there's a good chance that's also where your exam is going to end. Take a look at the hip, knee, and ankle for any redness or swelling, and go through both active and passive range of motion at each joint in all the directions they're supposed to move. Holding a hand on the joint while it moves can also help you pick up on crepitus, a grinding, popping sensation that can be signs of bone and cartilage injuries that are more common in adolescents and athletes. Our patient's exam isn't too exciting. It wouldn't be much of an example case if it didn't make us go through all of the steps for evaluation. He's definitely limping, and it looks like an antalgic gait with his right leg bothering him. His head-to-toe exam is pretty normal, and range of motion is fine in both hips, knees, and ankles. He doesn't like it when you palpate the right lower leg, but he shows it by kicking his legs and trying to get away, so it's hard to say if it's from pain or just being a less-than-cooperative toddler. When you're done with the history and exam, it's time to either make a clinical diagnosis or order some testing to either confirm a suspicion or dig for more information. In our case, we're still pretty clueless, so it's going to be more information. When that happens, it's good to be able to narrow down to a broader category you think might be a problem, and the article I mentioned at the top from American Family Physician has a nice systematic decision tree to help give you some guidance. I'm probably not teaching you much when I say that patients with a history of an acute traumatic injury should get x-rays and a potential call to the orthopedic team. Overuse injuries should be considered on the same spectrum as trauma. They just come from low-level strain accumulating over time instead of one big stressor all at once. They can be a little bit harder to pick up on in kids, but be on the lookout for a sudden increase in activity before the symptoms started. On a test question, it might be something like a kid who jumped to a more competitive soccer league with more practice time during the week. Probably the most famous overuse injury in kids is Osgood-Schlatter disease, or tibial tubercle apophysitis. In Osgood-Schlatter, the quadriceps tendon pulls on the growth center at the tibial tubercle, causing inflammation and sometimes separation of the bone at the growth plate. If you see someone with a nice little knob on their tibia just below the kneecap, 
there's a good chance they had Osgood Schlatter when they were younger. It's most common between 9 and 14 years old in kids who do sports that involve a lot of running or jumping. They'll have normal range of motion, but the area over the tibial tubercle will be tender and their pain will get worse with activity. Most patients improve with ice, rest, and over-the-counter anti-inflammatory meds, but the more severe cases sometimes need physical therapy or even surgery. If there's not any history of trauma or overuse and there aren't any systemic symptoms, you should think more about developmental or idiopathic issues. Two of the more popular ones on exams are leg calf perthase disease and a slipped capital femoral epiphysis. Leg calf perthase, apologies to Dr. Perthase because there's a decent chance I'm saying that name incorrectly, is an idiopathic avascular necrosis of the femoral head that happens in kids between 2 and 12 years old. Patients with this disease have a painful limp and limited range of motion at the hip. Every kid with leg calf perthase should see an orthopedic surgeon, but not all of them will need surgery. Treatment involves relieving stress on the hip through a combination of braces, orthotics, and other adaptive equipment while the disease runs its course. It's a self-limited process, and the prognosis is best for kids under 6 whose bones have the most ability to revascularize and remodel to keep a normal shape. The older the patient, the more likely they are to be left with a misshapen femoral head and need surgery. A slipped capital femoral epiphysis happens when the capital epiphysis, the piece of bone at the head of the femur, gets displaced. Patients with endocrine or metabolic disease, obesity, or who participate in high-strain activities are at a higher risk because all of those conditions either weaken the bone or put more stress on it. The classic test question patient is an obese boy between 10 and 14 years old who starts limping with mild to moderate pain in his hip. Treatment is surgery to stabilize the epiphysis with a screw or two, and patients generally recover really well. If a patient does have systemic symptoms, it's probably a good idea to get x-rays along with a CBC, ESR, and CRP. The x-rays are most helpful in evaluating for malignancies like osteosarcoma or Ewing sarcoma as a cause of pain. Cancer is a really uncommon reason for limping, but one you definitely don't want to miss. You should be suspicious in any patients with lethargy, fevers, weight loss, and, at least on test questions, pain that's worst at night. X-rays can be diagnostic for most bone tumors, and while everyone but the radiologist probably doesn't need to recognize the imaging pattern for day-to-day practice, it's a good idea to take a look at some of the classic findings before your next exam. That first round of testing also helps you evaluate for infectious or inflammatory causes of pain and limping. We covered osteomyelitis and septic arthritis a few episodes back, so we won't rehash the same points here other than to say that MRI and, if possible, bone culture are important for diagnosis and treatment. I'll also save more detailed discussion of rheumatologic disorders like juvenile idiopathic arthritis and lupus for episodes later on down the road. The one diagnosis I do want to go over here is toxic or transient synovitis, an inflammation of the lining of the joint. It usually occurs somewhere between two and four weeks after a viral illness, and while the hip is commonly affected, almost any joint can be involved. The tricky part is separating toxic synovitis from septic arthritis. Both can present with pain in a single joint and elevated inflammatory markers, but one will go away on its own while the other requires a trip to the operating room and weeks worth of antibiotics. Lucky for us, three smart people, Meninder Kocher, David Surakowski, and James Kasser, published a study about this problem in a 1999 issue of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. 
They reviewed a total of 282 kids who had come into the hospital with acute hip pain between 1979 and 1996 to try to identify predictors for septic arthritis versus toxic synovitis. They defined true septic arthritis as a synovial fluid white count greater than 50,000 and positive blood or joint cultures. Presumed septic arthritis was a synovial fluid white count greater than 50,000 with negative cultures, and transient synovitis cases had a synovial fluid white count less than 50,000, negative cultures, and resolved without any antibiotics. Based on their retrospective review, they identified four predictors for septic arthritis before you put a patient through joint aspiration. A temperature higher than 101.3, that's 38.5 Celsius, a serum white blood cell count higher than 12,000, an ESR over 40 millimeters per hour, and inability to walk. Patients with none of these risk factors had just a 0.2% chance of septic arthritis. One risk factor bumped the chances up to 3%, but two brought it all the way up to 40%. Patients with three risk factors had a 93% chance, and patients with all four had septic arthritis 99.6% of the time. A few years later, a second study added a CRP over 2.5 mg per liter to the criteria. For the new 5-point scale, three risk factors has an 83% chance, four goes along with a 93% chance, and all five risk factors brings it up to a 98% chance of septic arthritis. If you think about it, all of this more or less boils down to saying that patients with septic arthritis are sicker than patients with transient synovitis, but it's always good to have some data to back you up. We can take our patient in one of two directions on the algorithm Drs. Naranj, Kelly, and Sawyer published in American Family Physician. He doesn't have systemic symptoms, which points us away from things like malignancy and infection, and more towards something musculoskeletal. On the other hand, it might be safe to assume that because he's a two-year-old, there's some kind of injury that nobody saw. In either case, we end up at x-rays of the leg, which is exactly what we do. They come back negative, but in our case, that doesn't actually rule out a fracture. Our little friend has a toddler's fracture, a spiral or oblique fracture of the tibia that happens after a twisting injury or fall. There isn't usually much to see on exam, and because the fractures are often super fine lines, x-rays look normal until 10 to 14 days after the injury when you start to see evidence of new bone growth. It's a common enough injury that in some practices, if a toddler comes in limping after a minor trauma and has negative x-rays, they assume it's a toddler's fracture and cast the leg to start treatment. If follow-up x-rays show no fracture, that just means the kid gets out of the cast a little bit sooner. That's all for our episode on limping. As always, make sure you get a good history and don't get stuck on looking for an injury and forget to rule out potentially bigger problems and systemic diseases. Patients without systemic symptoms are more likely to have developmental, overuse, or traumatic problems, while things like fever, weight loss, and other systemic symptoms point you toward infections, inflammation, and malignancy. Labs aren't usually necessary unless there are systemic symptoms, but it's almost never a bad idea to get an x-ray as initial imaging. Before the end of the episode, I also want to let you know we're on Twitter now. You can follow me at pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P. I'm just getting started and still figuring out what I want to do with it, but I'll definitely be tweeting about episodes, conferences we're going to, and any interesting things that don't quite fit into episodes. Thanks for listening, and if you like the podcast, give us a rating wherever you found us. You can send any comments or feedback to pedsoup at gmail.com, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, or now reach me on Twitter. 
I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peed Soup.